Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias was the best all-round athlete the world has ever seen. She took names and kicked patooties all over the track, the court, the alley, the diamond, and the course. She never met a sport she couldn't conquer. The end. Let's talk about Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1930, comic icons Betty Boop and Blondie first appeared. Twinkies were invented, scotch tape began to be marketed, and the Sanders Court and Cafe opened, eventually ditching gasoline to focus on chicken, Kentucky Fried Chicken. What is formerly known as the planet Pluto was discovered and first photographed. Happy Days Are Here Again hit number one in the music charts. Marlena Dietrich starred in her international breakthrough role, and Betty Davis signed her first Hollywood movie contract. The Bank of Italy became the Bank of America. Tim Horton of hockey and coffee fame, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong of space fame, Joey and Woodward, Steve McQueen, Sandra Day O'Connor, Harvey Milk, Shel Silverstein, Sean Connery, Ray Charles and Warren Buffett were all born. D.H. Lawrence, Arthur Conan Doyle and Mary Harris Jones died. And in 1930, Babe Diedrichsen left her childhood life to begin a career as a multi-sport athlete. Mildred Ella Diedrichsen was born on June 26, 1911, in Port Arthur, Texas, in a house her father had built with his own two hands. She was the sixth of the seven children of Ulla and Hannah Diedrichsen. And the only thing that we really know about Mama is that... She was from an ocean town in Norway called Belsen and was the daughter of a shoemaker. She was a champion ice skater in Norway as well. (laughs) And that's about it. (laughs) And she was very athletic. That's all we got. So Papa, Ula, spelled O-L-E, and she had met and married in the city of Christiania. That's Oslo, which is a lot easier to pronounce, where Papa had apprenticed as a cabinet maker, but he was actually earning a living working on Norwegian oil tanker ships. He was gone for weeks at a time, even after they were married. Three children later, Ulla was feeling the pressure of, you know, being the provider. Norway's economy was floundering. Um, Some crop failures around this time sent many Norwegians to the Midwest, but he was no farmer. So that option really wasn't open to him, but he was on the hunt for an opportunity. And his ship docked at Port Arthur, right on the Texas-Louisiana border, which was one of these boom towns that had sprung up all over the area after oil had been discovered, I mean, less than five years before this. And in a town that has just recently discovered oil, that means that there's people who have recently discovered that they're very wealthy. So these people could support a carpenter for any number of projects. He's like, this is the place. As far as he was concerned, the climate was great. There's no snow. But here's the thing. Papa did not yet understand the concept of humidity. No, that's when you have to live to understand. (laughs) We had talked about this in the Annie Londonderry episode. The path to citizenship at this time was nothing like it is now. 
Papa had to stay in the United States for three years before he could bring his wife and three children over to live with him. But then just a job and time is all that was needed to become a citizen of the United States. The children automatically became citizens as soon as their parents did. So there was kind of like a three-year cooling off period where he was in Texas and they were still living in Norway. I think that is tough. And in his spare time, he built his family a house by hand on 7th Street in this development of houses that had been mostly built for the employees of Gulf Oil right down the street. So they could have a whole lot of workers within walking distance of all the rooms refineries. And he was a carpenter. So it was a very pretty little house with tall windows and a long porch. The woodwork inside was mahogany and walnut. It was a very sweet house. He was so excited about it. Every morning he would raise an American flag. Later he would tell people, I'm a Norwegian, but nobody is a prouder American than I am. Oh my gosh. Immigrant love right there. So time passed and he sent for his family. Poor mama, though. She got (laughs) off the boat and she just stood there at the dock. Imagine she's left the green fields of Norway and she looks around and it smelled like burning oil in the air. There's black smoke everywhere. The ugliness of all the oil derricks. You should see these pictures. There's blocks of these little ugly Eiffel Towers just right next to each other. (laughs) And she cried and cried and cried. I know. There was like this thin veneer of oil on everything. I would have cried too. Well, it was also tough for Hannah since she didn't speak English and everything is just strange and Ula didn't bring home enough money to support the family. So she had to take in washing, though I imagine even the fresh laundry smelled like petroleum. Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose everyone was used to that though. You know, there's a point at which you're like, I can't even smell this anymore. I think that is a brilliant adaptation of the human body. (laughs) (laughs) It is is really, really our salvation many times. Um, The mosquitoes, the heat. Eat Ami. You know, her her twins were born, though. The first native-born Americans in the family. And then following the twins came little Mildred, who Mama called Min Bebe, my baby. The whole family called her baby from birth. Baby was one of those early walkers. You know, parents, you sometimes get escape artists as children. She would be out of her crib and into trouble. <laughs> Everyone would be downstairs in the middle of the night and like, do do do, she'd appear. Hey, wait, weren't you just upstairs? My husband's grandpa was like this, and his dad put a top on his crib, like a locked cage. Well, Pop, Papa even said, I'm afraid there's no crib that I can build that's going to hold her. This child, even at a few months old, she was different than all the other kids. You think, okay, by the sixth one, there's some patterns forming. But little Bebe was not like that. She was louder. She was more active. She was more animated, like right from the get-go. This is in her DNA to be this kind of person. So it was just constant vigilance. Honestly, it was exhausting. (laughs) And it was also foreshadowing. There you go. So (laughs) when when baby was four, Ule decided he would have to go back to sea to earn enough money. And off he goes, leaving his six children and his wife, who was nine months pregnant with their seventh child. And because the universe has a sense of humor, Mama went into labor just ahead of a category four hurricane. They were unable to flee inland like a lot of their neighbors because Mama was having a baby. And right after the baby was born, Mama had to take care of business and 
I mean, I'm talking within minutes, had to get all the kids upstairs in hopes of safety. They had food and supplies to get upstairs, bedding, extra clothes. Winds reached gusts of 145 miles an hour. Windows blown out all over town. The floodwaters reached seven feet high. Including on the first floor of their house. So she's upstairs with these kids and the first floor is flooding. So the little family survived upstairs in their sturdily built house. I have to say, Papa gets the credit for that one. Even a three-day-old Arthur Storm. (laughs) I love that name, although they always called him Bubba. Bubba. Poor thing. I know. Arthur Storm is such a great name. Well, almost 300 of their neighbors did not survive. Um, There's no good way to say that. And uh, there was nothing also to say from downstairs. Furniture, all the chickens Mama kept for eggs, um, even all the trees had been swept away. Um, It was a powerful, powerful storm. Uh, As an adult, Babe Diedrichson (laughs) told this story with her father as the big hero. He was not even home. He was not even in the country. So can we please raise a glass for Hannah Diedrichson in the mom's get done department? Uh, I just want her to get some credit for being a bad Alec. Why does dad get the credit for this? In that same story, Babe has herself like laughing at the weather. Like four-year-old is going to laugh at massive wind and scary lightning. Okay. The next day, this is corroborated by several of her sisters. All the kids except the two littlest, i.e. the one that's three days old and baby. They spent the first calm day jumping out of the second story windows into the oil slicked floodwater, which is probably contraindicated. <laughs> I know. And you'll see photos of the whole town posed waist deep in this water in a petrochemical bath salt spa. Yes. <laughs> That's got to be the weirdest sound ever. Sorry. That's me gagging. <laughs> well, Papa came back to this devastation and he decided, as did many of their surviving neighbors, to move inland 20 miles or so to Beaumont, Texas, where everyone who fled town had gone, you know, during the storm. So obviously better for hurricane season. That's where one goes to be safe from hurricanes, but yet close enough to the refineries. So that is where they moved. Papa was such a storyteller, the way that he told it. This family has a good way of... uh phrasing everything to seem positive. He's like, the storm blew us 15 miles inland. Babe, as everyone started calling her, learned to swim in a river full of alligators and water moccasins. So if that does not just wrap her up in one sentence, (laughs) I don't know what does. You can add rip currents to that too, just to make it a little more dangerous. So she didn't like dolls or babies or being quiet. She wanted adventure. She wanted drama. She wanted to play with the boys. I think if you've seen the movie Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, she reminds me of Itchy Threadgood. Um, oh. Yes. She spent years hanging around the sandlot begging to play baseball. And the boys are like, no, get away. As if, you know, they might put her in if they were short a guy, but they would put her way in the outfield where you put all the players who weren't that good at this age. See, now you got to put really good guys out there. (laughs) That's right. They got to be able to throw. But when you're teeny tiny, the outfield's a pretty safe place to park somebody. So she started school at Magnolia Elementary. And like those little cats in the videos that all the dogs are afraid of, soon her fist-fighting abilities made the little dudes place her pretty high in the pecking order. Babe didn't care. She'd walk around with a black eye as soon as not. The other guy had it worse. She was extremely 
competitive, and that is putting it lightly. In an experiment to maybe contain Babe's troublemaking, the female principal allowed her to play with the boys at recess, which was unheard of. Soon, she had become the playground marbles champion. She literally had all the marbles. (laughs) And yes, they started to let her pitch and play shortstop. That's where you put your best guys. And, you know, you're like, oh, she's just got this natural ability. Just the marbles alone, how she got that good is something that she's going to carry through the rest of her life. Yes, she had natural abilities at sports. Yes, she was naturally very competitive. But she also pushed herself in practice. She practiced marbles for hours after school just so that she could get as good as she did. She knew she had to put that time in. This is just marbles to be the marble champion of Magnolia (laughs) Elementary School. Well, it was an important part of the school day. And so when something becomes important to you, even if it's not important to others, I mean, my son practices his skateboard and scooters from when he gets home from school until it gets too dark to see outside and I make him come in. So it's all whatever you're obsessed with. That's very true. I kind of wish that on everybody, actually. Find a thing that you are willing to just blow your time on. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Devote your time to. Let's not think about it as blowing your time on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, I'm with you. Everybody needs one of those. Takes a long time to find them sometimes. I'm speaking from experience. (laughs) (laughs) Around the neighborhood, Babe became known as the ringleader of the baby gang. The worst kid, some would say. She was dared to jump off of a roof of a half-built house. So she did, but landed on a piece of wood that went through her leg. So what does she do? She goes home, she wraps it in tape, and the next day she does it again to see if she can do the same trick. And, And delight all the neighborhood kids. That day, she just cracked three ribs. No big deal. She really anteed up on the macho department. (laughs) She did. And she just lived her life, like even from this young age, the way she wanted to. Everyone assumed that if there was mayhem in town, the next thing you'd see would be that babe Diedrichsen running away from it, probably laughing her head off. (laughs) She got a reputation and some parents forbade their kids from playing with her just out of self-preservation because her charisma could make people stretch themselves. In an inappropriate direction. Sometimes she jumped onto freight trains and then jumped off them again. That was more Iggy Threadgood. She climbed flagpoles because she heard about a competition and the principal came out of elementary school and sees her, you know, 25 feet up in the air. Um, She dared people to run along ridge poles of houses and stay underwater. Who can stay underwater the longest? The swimming hole was full of people recovering from an attempt (laughs) to beat her. (laughs) Anything could be a competition. Well, she was busted one Halloween after a pretty dangerous prank. The kids on Halloween thought it would be super duper funny to go put laundry soap all over the trolley rails in a particularly precarious spot. And when the trolley driver put on his brakes, oh, ho, ho, it wasn't going to work right. Wouldn't it be funny to see his face and see all the passengers and hear them screaming? That's going to be hilarious. Along comes the trolley. They're watching from the bushes. You know how you laugh ahead of time. He he can't wait for this to happen. The brakes don't work. <laughs> sure enough. Oh, it's out of control. And the sweating, anxious driver finally wrestled it to a stop. And everyone is regaining their composure. I don't know how much pee spilled on the ground. <laughs> 
So Babe decided to take it just a little farther. She climbed on the roof of the trolley and unpinned it so that it would go off the tracks. She unpinned it so that it wouldn't work because that's where the power came from. Oh, I got uh, that's because I don't understand it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So the trolley goes along these rails and then there's a like little arm up top that rests upon the power cable. And um, and so she climbed up and then unhooked that arm, bent it off the thing. So in order to fix it, the fat trolley guy had to climb up himself and rehook it. <laughs> that's just chapter two on the, of hilarity. Chapter three is that dad was on the trolley and he saw what he thought was his son because it was Halloween. Babe was dressed in her brother's clothes. So he went home and blamed the son. Of course he did. He thought it was him. It looked like him. And Babe actually eventually that evening came forward and confessed. So the fact that she could have just blown it off and just let him take the blame, she could have done that, but she decided that no, that wasn't the right thing to do. She has a side to her that does the right thing. When she was getting blamed for things other kids did, she would just take the blame. You know, she would protect the kids in her neighborhood. Yes, she was a daredevil and she was mischievous, but she also had this honest side to her. There was a turning point in Babe's life when she was 12 years old. Um, Mama had sent Babe to the store for the meet for the eighth grade graduation party for the twins. Everyone was very very excited. Mama had been cleaning and planning for this party for a long time. And it was a big, big deal. The first American-born children were graduating from elementary school. So she sent Babe to the store and Babe sure enough got distracted on the way home. She joined a baseball game thinking it was going to be a couple minutes. And you know how time flies when you're having fun. She had left the meat just sitting on the ground, which is very unhygienic of her. Um, <laughs> it was unhygienic for her and probably for the dog that ate it. So mama realized there's no meat. Mama had saved the money for that meat for weeks and there was no chance that she could buy any more. There was nothing anyone could do. The party was ruined. Um, it's not often that Hannah showed her feelings, but Hannah cried then. She cried. She was so disappointed and Babe had never felt so bad in the entirety of her whole life. Now, I will say, Hannah didn't simply just cry. She also tried to whip. She was chasing Babe down the street, <laughs> trying to whip her with a piece of rope all the way there. <laughs> and then Babe stopped when she got too far ahead. She's like, sorry, Mama, I'll wait for you a little bit. <laughs> what are you going to do with a kid like that? You're so mad. <laughs> Babe actually feels terrible about the whole situation. She realizes that she's costing her family money by doing things like this. So she decided that it was time for her to go out and get a job at 12. Of course, there's no child labor laws. She got her first job, which was at a fig packing plant for 30 cents an hour. Not too bad, but she didn't think she was making enough money. So she quit that job and took a second job sewing potato sacks for a penny a bag. This one, she could control how many she did, which was quite a lot. The claim was 68 sacks an hour. So it's 68 cents an hour, but that's a lot of sewing. <laughs> so she never would keep any of her money. She was contributing around $5 a week as a 12, 13-year-old and hardly kept anything for herself, she might keep the occasional nickel or dime because she was saving for something that she really wanted. Um, she wanted a harmonica like she had heard on the Castor Oil Clarence show on the radio. That was like her big dream. You've brought this money home. Surely you deserve it. And she's like, no, 
once I've given it to you, it's family money and I can't take it. I find this so admirable. Mm -hmm. It's such a young age. Yeah. And it's a trait that she's going to carry for the rest of her life. So the Diedrichsons had a neighbor who had the most amazing job. Aunt Minnie, as everyone called her, was a circus performer who hung by her teeth from a trapeze and spun and swung at the top of the tent with no net. Now, Papa had built a backyard obstacle course ostensibly for the boys, but Babe and her sister Lily used to go back there and dare devil it up like Aunt Minnie on the bars. They were all about it. And I do not know why their parents ever agreed to this, because I'm telling you right now, (laughs) I would not agree to this. But Aunt Minnie took Babe and her sister Lily off to join the circus. Kids are a hit in the circus, she said. Well, they can be a hit all they want. I mean, they're going to take my daughters away to join the circus. How did that happen? Well, it was only supposed to be for a few weeks. Even so. Aunt Minnie was a dear family friend. You know, if she said, I'm going to watch over the kids, they'll have a great time. They can run around, learn something new because these kids aren't exposed to anything outside of Beaumont. So maybe the parents are like, oh, we need to broaden their horizons. Okay, you can go learn to ride the elephants for just a few weeks. They learned tightrope walking and trapeze work, all kind of cockamamie things. And the audiences, to be fair to Aunt Minnie, did love them. (laughs) That's true. And they found it such a high being on the receiving end of all that applause. The few weeks stretched into months and months and months. (laughs) Finally, Papa got on a train and went and collected his daughters to bring them home. But by the time Babe got back to school, she had missed so much that she was held back a whole year. Academics were not Babe's strong point. <laughs> yeah, and are you really going to study backstage at the circus? No. I don't. She's not. not one to crack a book at the best of times. That's right. <laughs> well, here's the advantage of this, though. So you're held back in eighth grade. Babe got to high school a year ahead of everyone in physical development. So, yes, she's on the freshman teams, but she's bigger and she's stronger and she's faster. That whole 13 to 15 section, you can see some big differences in kids that are only a year apart. So as a freshman, Babe was on the girls' varsity teams in basketball, baseball, tennis, and diving. She was just a natural athlete. She was queen of the Miss Royal Purples Athletic Squad. (laughs) I love the name of that team. Sadly, that school is no longer, so there's no more royal purples out there. I was sad to find that out. There had been a movement since the, say, 1890s, perhaps, that girls needed some sort of physical education in schools. But right about now, in the late 20s, the country was kind of facing a backlash against women's sports, about girls competing, the competing part. It wasn't the sweating anymore so much. It was the unladylike desire to win. Unhealthy. Shades of bicycle face. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Also, and get this, they said, and they said this out loud as if people were supposed to understand this as some kind of maxim, competition leads to disappointment because it's discouraging when only the best people win. So if you thought the everybody get a trophy thing was new... It's not. Thank you. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, wow, that has shades of everybody get a trophy. (laughs) 
that's pretty much the whole thing about races is somebody wins. I don't know why that should be surprising. But well, the sports editor of the local paper, a man named Tiny Scurlock, was married to Babe's English teacher, and he recognized her abilities, and her name appeared very often in the sports pages. Babe kept a box of her press clippings, a habit she would continue for the rest of her life. Um, although I will say her mother pasted them all in a scrapbook uh, for her. <laughs> if it was left to Babe, she'd have a shoebox full of newspaper clippings. Um, don't we all? I, my clippings, my column clippings for like five years worth of columns, I clipped out of the paper. And they're in a um, wash pan that was used for my kids when they were in the hospital when they were born. They're just stacked in it. So maybe I do have shades of Babe. <laughs> Ooh, that's true. Well, more exciting news in ladies' sports than the prohibition against competition for high school students. For the first time during the 1928 Olympics in Amsterdam, women were allowed to compete in track and field. And an American high school student had won the gold medal in the 100 meter. Betty Robinson, by the way, was her name. Um, quite amazing. Babe was inspired. A high school girl had become the undisputed best in the world at something. Babe was particularly interested in an event called the Hurdles, which hadn't ever been in the Olympics before, but was starting to be run in the amateur track and field championship meets for women. It had been a men's event since the very beginning of the modern Olympics. So we see a possible opening, don't we? Very. Yes, sister, yes. You know, Babe's high school didn't have a track team, but her side of the block was all uh, yard, hedge, yard, hedge. That could and be all- made to work. Sure. There was one hedge that was a little taller, but Babe just went to the guy's house and said, hey, can you trim it? So they're all the same size. And he did. That just shows you the charm she had. He trimmed his hedges and suddenly Babe had a training course for jumping the hurdles. Now, a hurdle is only a couple inches thick. Hedges are two feet thick. So she actually had to jump a whole lot farther. And she started to practice for the hurdles. I mean, she had seen that an American high school student could compete in the Olympics. She knew she was an athlete. This is something she could do. This was a goal she could work toward. And so since she didn't have access to things like stopwatches and all that kind of thing, what she had was poor old Lily. (laughs) (laughs) And so she and Lily would start at the end of the street and Lily was just running on the sidewalk and Babe was doing her hurdles with her very modified, please don't scratch up my leg technique (laughs) that she kept through her whole life and everyone thought was so funny. But so she and Lily would start off at the same time and Babe's big goal was to beat Lily to the end, even with the obstacles. And eventually she did it. So it was a huge, giant bummer to Babe when someone told her that um, the Olympics only happen once every four years. You knew that, right? What? (laughs) No. Also, sports at school weren't challenging enough anymore. She dominated at basketball and the school board wouldn't let her play football no matter how hard she pleaded or how much she proved how well she could kick a field goal in practice. At least the coach let her go and kick field goals in practice. But during a game, the state of Texas said no Ma'am. And it is very frustrating to have a dream and a skill and absolutely no way to express it. And I'm sure we have all felt that. It was a dark cloud over Babe's head. (laughs) 
My oldest child is 22 years old. That means that I've gone through 22 Mother's Days. And I can tell you this, for any one of them, I would have loved to have gotten a FabFitFun subscription. FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box full of full-size beauty, fashion, home, fitness, and wellness products. Each box is valued at over $200 for $49.99. The last box that I received had these $85 Diff Cruise sunglasses. They were an aviator style that I honestly normally wouldn't have picked for myself. But I put them on and my son was like, hey, mom, those look good. Do they, son? It would have been nice if you had given me this for Mother's Day, huh? So sign up for FabFitFun today, either for yourself, for your mom, for anyone you know that you'd like to say four times a year, hey, I'm thinking of you. Hey, I love you. So use our code HISTORY to get $10 off your first box. Go to FabFitFun.com and sign up. That's promo code HISTORY to get $10 off your first box. That's over $200 value for $30. Go to fabfitfun.com and use our code HISTORY for $10 off your first FabFitFun box today. So Babe's athletic career was at a standstill, but enter her knight on a shining white horse, at least... On the bleachers, anyway. His name was Melvorn Jackson McCombs, but everybody just called him the Colonel. Now, he had caught wind of Babe because her team, the Miss Royal Purples, had won the state championship three years in a row. She was getting press from Tiny Spurlock that said things like, Babe plays with an ease and grace rivaling a dancer. And when Babe gets the ball... The scorekeeper gets his adding machine and then sometimes loses count. What a nice thing to say. So the colonel had read about that and he came calling to give her a job offer. Come be a typist for the employer's casualty company of Dallas. (laughs) Babe didn't miss a trick. She didn't even pause for a second. Although we are like, a what? I can type over 86 words a minute, said Babe. A, said the colonel, probably not true. B, I don't care if you can type at all, sister. He was going to pay her $75 a week to be a ringer on their company basketball team. That was more money than grown men made, more than papa made, anyway. A lot of attention could be drawn to a company that sponsored a winning sports team. It was pre-TV. You know, (laughs) uh, that's where the advertising was. I will tell you the corporate ringer thing is still happening, Miss Susan. All I'm going to say in the interest of not incriminating anyone, my husband is super good at golf. Mm-hmm. He has competed in many corporate events, ah. for which he works in HR. La, 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 la. Oh my gosh, he has something in common with Babe Diedrichson. Who knew? The colonel had taken over the sports team five years before. He was a master of publicity, which is good because that's what the team was for. He took the baggy bloomers that the girls wore when they were playing and made them into shorts, showing a whole lot more skin. The shirts that they were wearing were suddenly sleeveless and everything was very tight fitting. Not only was it more attractive for people to look at, but the girls could move a whole lot freer. They were playing better in those five years. So crowds of thousands came to watch the games of the Golden Cyclones, the Industrial League is what the whole thing was called. And Babe was a high scorer, although 
That has a dark side because her teammates called her a ball hog. She hated to pass the ball. She was just out for herself, honey, said one of her former teammates. But her points got them all the way to the national championship. In that league, when somebody's fouled, the coach can choose who gets to make the free throw. It doesn't have to be the player that was fouled upon. And he chose Babe. And the game was tied. And she set up for her free throw. And she missed. (laughs) So sometimes you learn a hard lesson. (laughs) Babe had been writing her own press releases and sending them back to Tiny, um, the sports editor, back home. She had horrible typing and spelling. If you could see, maybe we can find a photo of one of these letters. She knew it too. There were lots of strikeouts and it was bad. And then she would write in there, I'm some kind of typist, huh? And it was just like a big in-joke, you know? Well, she never really did well academically. And at this point, she was 18 years old. She had left school months before the end of the school year, her senior year, with a promise that she was going to come back to graduate. So... I wouldn't expect a whole lot of great grammar and spelling from her anyway. She never did go back to school. She dropped out and honestly became the family breadwinner. She did on the road have to pay rent and food, but she sent most of her money home to her family like she used to when she was sewing potato sacks. She also, during assorted other seasons, played baseball and tennis for the company teams so she could keep earning money. That was kind of her motivation is to keep the money coming. And the side effect was that she got to play a lot of sports, which she loved too. And then she was taken to see her first track meet. She was so excited about track. Here was a sport that she didn't have to worry about being called a ball hog. She didn't have to worry about working as a team. It was an individual sport where she was on a team, but her performance was all that mattered. She loved it. But the thing is, Employers Casualty no longer had a track team. They had ditched it years ago as not a moneymaker and not a big draw or whatnot. And Babe decided to go right to the top to the president of the company to convince him to form a women's track team. So she rehearsed and paced up and down and she was really nervous about making this pitch. And she went up there and she opened the door and she started in and he goes, look, babe, you can have whatever you want. That's fine. We'll make you a track team. You want to be the captain? You're the captain. It was like, oh, oh, (laughs) he knew upon which side his bread was buttered. Uh, If you know what I mean, even this early babe was a force um, for public attention. So she did finally, in another year, lead the basketball team to win the national championships, though I don't think she was any less a bullhawk. No. (laughs) And she was probably more of a bragger than she had been the year before, too. There's another skill that she's perfecting during these formative years of her athletic career. I think the other members of the team just openly resented her. Not the least because the team, brace yourselves, was now referred to in the press as Babe and her employer's casualty girls. So in effect, she was having a solo career in a team sport. And if I was another part of that team, I would be angry too. Now, the newspaper headline was not her fault, but her attitude was her fault. No sense being that jealous of me because I'll always be better than you and you should just get over it, It is basically her attitude. So can you imagine, oh, I totally want to sit with her in the employee cafeteria. (laughs) No, people just couldn't handle that. No. And she didn't seem to mind because 
all of her free time, she wasn't going to be going to the movies or sitting around and trying makeup styles or whatever these women were doing, which was the most sexist thing I have ever said in my entire life. That's funny. <laughs> Babe was filling all of her free time with practice. You know, the thing that she had done with the marbles as a child, she's doing with track and field now. She wants to be the best. So she knows that that requires practice. And practice doesn't end when the two-hour practice of the team ends. It goes on as late as she can make it. And she kept pushing herself. So she didn't really have the desire maybe to be social. So what the girls thought of her, I'm sure it affected her, but I don't know that it mattered all that much. She called them jealous cats all the time anyway. I think the disdain was mutual. So the reluctance of the company to pay her more, although she was now at 90 bucks a week, made her quit. She had been making the company a lot of money, but I think they didn't want to set a precedent as to payroll. They had been paying for golf lessons for her over at the country club in lieu of a raise. But, you know, dang it, I am out of here with this. She wrote to that sports writer, I got to make something of my athletic ability now or never. I'm not going to be good always and forever. You know, I'm sitting on the bench most of the games now because I won't try to play ball. I don't want to play with them for nothing. In effect, she went on strike. And um, right after she quit, though, both Babe and the company were panicking during her very brief absence. And when she came back, having regretted her decision, they had the weirdest proposition for her. The National Track and Field Championship in 1932 was going to be the qualifying competition to get into the Olympics in L.A. The publicity stunt was the employer's casualty would bring a team to this competition, but it would be a team of one. Babe, that's it. How offensive was that to everyone else on the track team? They officially have no chance to qualify for the Olympics now. Mm -hmm. They have been shut out by their company wanting to send Babe by herself. When the teams were announced at the event, out came 15 people, 22 people, yay! And then Babe Diedrichsen, the one girl track team who was competing in eight events. You never heard such a roar of the crowd, said Babe Diedrichsen. I just got goosebumps all over my body. And competitors found themselves standing around waiting for Babe to finish another event before they could run their race. And did that not just feed into her ego. Now that I'm here, we can start, ladies. Eight <laughs> of these competitors had run in the 1928 Olympics. These are not just like typists from New Jersey. You know what I mean? Like, right. It was a great day. It was a great day for her. <laughs> she won five of her events. Yes, she did. She tied another one for first place. And during the day, she broke Three world records. Not too shabby. Of the 22 teams that were there at the event, Employer's Casualty came in first. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she won the team competition by getting more points than any other team by her own self. And you know what? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, she's officially authorized to brag. That's <laughs> that was right. phenomenal. <laughs> and in the paper, her day was summarized as follows. And I quote, this was the most amazing series of performances ever accomplished by any individual male or female in track and field history. So upon her win, she danced around and played her harmonica that she finally bought. And became a star. That attitude, the performance, the celebration, the <laughs> lack of dignity, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned, um, made the public love her. And that is when she became 
basically a household name in America. And soon she'd be a household name all over the world. Now what are you going to do, babe? I'm going to go to the Olympics. And like right away, you're going to go to the Olympics. They left right from Chicago to California for the Los Angeles 1932 Olympic Games. So the train trip to the competition was rough, I guess. <laughs> um, babe just doesn't have the social skills necessary to get along with her teammates. She had the athletic skill. There's nobody denying that. But she was doing things like pillow fighting them and blowing her harmonica in their faces, you know, like your eight-year-old son might do if you're on the phone to get attention, just capering about, look at me, look at me. And so she got cold-shouldered. But she, as they say on reality TV, was not there to make friends. <laughs> she was there to beat everybody in sight and she had no bones telling people, I'm here to beat you and I will. And it, there was no term for psyching people out. But she was psyching people out all the way there. Oh, yeah. And it really did not help that the press said things like, any help Babe Diedrichsen might need at the Olympics will be provided by 15 other young ladies. 15 other young ladies who had worked probably a whole lot longer than Babe had. Some of Babe's teammates on the American team had actually been to the Olympics before. Much to the sadness of the founder of the modern Olympic Games when he created them in 1896. Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who said that women should not compete in the Olympics because women did not compete in the original ancient Olympics. But he had been thwarted by the march forward of society. Women had been competing in the Olympics since 1900, but they had been competing in things that were considered ladylike. Social sports like sailing, lawn tennis, golf, equestrian croquet. In the 1928 Olympics, they were, like we said earlier, allowed to compete in track and field. The head of the Olympic Federation actually said out loud that women should be prevented from, and I quote, cluttering up the Olympic field with delicate parodies of the mighty feats that males perform. Ouch. So not only was he not interested in women in the Olympics, he was very angry that they were destroying his event. Mm -hmm. Previous Olympics, the 1928 Olympics, had been a little bit of bad PR for women's track and field. First off, women were only allowed to compete in a few events. This was so bad that the British team boycotted the 1928 Olympics based on that one ruling. It was considered an experimental thing for the women to do track and field at all. And the president of the International Olympic Committee considered the whole thing a failure when after the 800 meter race, six of the nine women who had competed had to be helped off the field. Now, whether they were just really disappointed and not placing in the event, or if they were overexerted, it really doesn't matter because what happened was they said, okay, that's it. This is a failure. Women should not even be competing in track and field. Women should only be competing in gymnastics and swimming, lawn tennis and skating in the 1932 Olympics. Fortunately for Babe, between 1928 and 1932, there was a new president of the International Olympic Committee who took that ruling out and said, yes, we can have women computing in track and field. Although I will say they didn't put the 800 meter back in. 
That's true. At least not for that Olympics. Um, The ladies arrived in Los Angeles and the public was sure excited to see them. Mary Pickford, the queen of Hollywood, was all about women at the Olympics. Breaking new ground was her specialty after all. And she was just so excited that the women were coming to compete in her city. Uh Babe was impressed by no one. Clark Gable introduced himself. Oh, you're the one those sissies have been raving about, she said. <laughs> she shot guns and arrows with Amelia Earhart. Although she didn't go in a plane with her like Amelia had asked. She invited her to go flying and Babe declined. Was it a fear of flying or was it a just like refusal to be impressed? Um, I don't know. I assumed it to be a fear of flying. It's not anything <laughs> she'd ever done before. And not that that would scare her, but it's really high up. It could have been all tied up in something else Babe hated. A lot. Limelight stealing is what she saw it as. Um, the women's swimming and diving athletes were being given a lot of press attention. These were ladies who, how shall I say this? They were conventionally pretty, I guess, <laughs> is the way to put it. And they didn't sweat because they were in the water. There was a certain romance to them. They were like ballet dancers, America's princesses. And so they got a little attention and Babe hated that. Babe would taunt them and she'd go over and say, sister, I could beat your time in a practice session if they'd let me try it and would disrupt their interviews by playing her harmonica. What is that? What do you think that is? I'm going to I'm likening it back to the lack of social cues and just not realizing that it wasn't cool. Because she'd gotten this far by being this braggadocious, super confident athlete. And so she'd always been the center of attention and now she wasn't. One of her contemporaries described her as a shell of overconfidence over a core of insecurity. Mm -hmm. So I think she could have let her amazing record stand on its own. Now, we do have another sports star that was famous for being this kind of self-confident and inappropriate toward his competitors, Muhammad Ali. I mean, if you remember his main line, I am the greatest. Uh (laughs) It's the the title of one of his books. He was known for it. Um, So her personality, at least with peers, was very problematic. Though I will say a couple of noobs, a couple of people who had no chance of ever upstaging her on the field found her very encouraging. One of the girls that she stayed with was having a case of I'm not worth these. And Babe took her under her wing a little bit and tried to build up her confidence. Look, you're just as good as everyone here, she said. And the woman really appreciated that. And her view of Babe was entirely different than, oh, well, I guess the rest of the teams. Yeah. I think if she was threatened by somebody, her first instinct was to try to take you down a peg. That's why she Mm -hmm. acted that way with Clark yeah like you're not so much mr mustachio Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) and i think this kind of goes for the whole rest of her life people either loved her or they didn't they either absolutely adored her they were drawn to her immediately or they were like oh my gosh i can't believe i have to be in the same room as this woman yeah i'm we're seeing that here in the olympics there's kind of nothing in the middle even in her press coverage Um, I thought it was telling and maybe goes back to the fact that they're more used to croquet stars and the beautiful divers. But reporters asked her about her clothes. Uh, Was she a good cook? Did she have a sweetheart at home? You know, who did her hair? Blah, blah, blah. And maybe she didn't give them satisfactorily, quote, feminine answers because they called her masculine. They 
always remarked on her muscles, on her jawline. It just seemed to be a theme they wanted to play up. And I don't know if it was just easier to write about that in, in difference to other people or if it was malicious. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was because it was different than everybody else. You know, she had short hair at this point, you know, cropped as short as possible. So it didn't get in her eyes. She was not a traditionally feminine looking woman. And I think that because of that, they pointed it out, you know, like she don't, she looks a little bit like a man. Now, Babe did have a breezy disregard for social conventions, which started early at the Olympics, even during the opening ceremonies. During the opening ceremony, Babe took her shoes off because they were hurting her feet. She was wearing stockings for the very first time in her life at the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. And she was just really uncomfortable. So she took her shoes off and then other women saw it and they followed suit. Naked feet. Oh, my. (laughs) So the opening ceremonies over Babe's first event in front of 60,000 people was the javelin. And she had been eyeballing this little flag on the javelin grounds, although after almost hitting a competitor in practice, she decided no more practice. (laughs) I really don't want to do time for murder right now. Um, So she saw that flag, which marked the previous record. She was circling around and thinking, and her very first throw sailed 11 feet past it. Feet past it. (laughs) Even though, to her mind, she didn't make a good throw. She said she messed up almost every bit of her technique, but no one even came close to her, of course, in that throw. Gold medal city. This performance was so very shocking as the opening foray of Babe at the Olympics. So we thought she was a star before. What has just happened? (laughs) Put this in your head. This is also going on for her next events. While she threw that javelin because she felt it was off, she actually tore cartilage in her shoulder throwing that javelin all that distance. So she's going to go through the rest of the Olympics with torn cartilage in her shoulder. I would be curled up in a ball, (laughs) taking a leave and wondering if I could get a prescription for Percocet. Luckily, her next two events had a lot to do with her legs and only medium to do with her arms, but I can't imagine it was that comfortable. Her second Mm -mm. event was uh, noteworthy for being so close that the officials had to refer to one of the very first photo finishes in the Olympics in order to award Babe the gold medal in the hurdles. And it was a bit of controversy because all of the people (laughs) rooting for Babe not to win were looking at her competitor with their one finger up, like, one, one, you won, you one. And right at the time the judges looked over, the competitor shook her head and flashed a two at her friends. And nobody can pinpoint for sure, but they think that influenced the judges to call Babe the winner because both of those ladies had the same time of 11.7 seconds. Their watches didn't go to hundredths of a second. There's a picture of both women crossing the finish line and Babe's elbow is out just a little bit farther, you know, maybe she legitimately did cross part of her body over first. People standing in different places had different opinions. Mm-hmm. And Babe herself, though, gave some advice. Always throw your arms up at the end. Act like you win every single time you cross the finish line. And one day it'll come in real handy. And this might actually be the time it came in <laughs> real right. handy. That's true. That's true. <laughs> her final event was the high jump. And again, there's more drama. Babe had this style of high jumping. It was called the Western roll. And it wasn't the traditional way that women did the high jump. She jumped like the men. You'd fling yourself over 
kind of horizontally rather than the ladylike scissor kick style where you're basically vertical and most of the height seems to be missing, which I can't even imagine. Do they still do that? I don't think so because Babe's Way, I think, is the way they do it now. Um, So anyway, her manly jumping style led to a lot of faults because if your shoulders went ahead of your hips, then that was a foul. And you had to be really careful when you were jumping like Babe did. Well, it came down to the final two. It was Babe and one competitor in the high jump. And they had already cleared a record-breaking height, both of them. Right at the end, they decided to disqualify Babe's last big jump. Suddenly, the judges were like, nope, sorry, that's an illegal jump. That doesn't count. You only win the silver. And that seemed unfair to Babe because she had been jumping like that all day. This particular jump, you really did foul. I know it's easy to do. You really did. And of course, she was indignant. She was kept from the last gold medal that she was eligible for. And she did fume, but she did not begrudge the gold medalist who did perform very, very well. Babe respected real talent, I think. If you can really legitimately beat me, then fair enough. I'm going to beat you next time. Right, <laughs> right. I, I'm sorry to say the rest of the team celebrated Babe's loss. I, I don't have a silver medal. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and neither do most of you, kitty cats, frankly. <laughs> the competitors were given a little gift when Babe was standing there on the silver medal step, rolling her eyes because, you know, this is horrible. I can't believe I'm second in place. So there was a nice button that she gave them that they could push. So, yeah, the rest of her team was like, woohoo, Babe lost. Yeah, Babe sort of made her own bed with that. Still, I will say the gold medalist invited her to the party and openly made it okay. So was the bigger person. (laughs) Um, But it must be said that Babe is the undisputed woman star of the 1932 uh, Olympics. She signed 5,000 autographs that day. Nobody could believe her performance. The papers called her Iron Woman. So is there any sport she can't master? A lot of the reporters were discussing among themselves. So they called Babe up to the press box. They had a little chat about how she was robbed of her medal. And they said, hey, when can we play golf? And without missing a beat, she said, tomorrow? (laughs) Well, did they know she had a secret? (laughs) She decided in that very moment that she was going to keep the fact that she had been on the high school golf team a secret from them. That's something they just didn't need to know. And the fact that her company had been paying for years worth of lessons with a golf pro in Dallas. (laughs) In lieu of paying her more. So she shows up to the game the next day and makes a big show of not being, you know, very experienced. She even lets the golf pro give her a little lesson, you know, on how to how to play this game. So what is this? A stick? Oh, a club. Oh, that's really cool. And how do you swing it? That's funny. Okay. You know, oh my God. She like lured them into cigar smoking, elbowing each other over confidence. And then have you seen Happy Gilmore? (laughs) She got up to that golf ball, acted like she didn't understand about tees. A guy rushed up. Oh, no, you have to put on a tee. Oh, you do? A tee. Tee, you say? That's what it's called? And then she just wanged the crap out of it. 250 yards. She outdrove all of them. Just... The guys were catching flies with their open mouths. They were just gobsmacked. (laughs) I love it. As the competition goes on, 
three of the guys that she's playing with are warming up and saying, okay, she can play. The fourth is still really pissed at her. He does not like her. He is not a fan. And so after a few holes of him rolling his eyes, they had to drive for another green. And Babe came up shorter than this reporter, whose name is Paul Gallico. And she decided, ooh, I need to do something here. Hey, Paul, she said, you want to race to the green? And Paul, being the manly macho man that he was, said, sure. And of course, Babe kicked his hiney and he arrived at the green, not a fan even more, totally exhausted. So he lost not only the race, but he lost that hole to her. So she has kind of created an enemy right about now. But someone else that saw this match said, if Miss Diedrichson would take up golf, there's no doubt in my mind, she would be a world leader in no time. Hmm. Let's put a pin in that. So and instead of taking the train, she flew back to Dallas on the employer's casualties dime because if you think she was a big draw before, she is now a gold medal winning Olympic athlete with worldwide fame. You can bet that they are going to lay out the red carpet for her. And that's exactly what happened. She had a hero's welcome in Dallas. Employer's casualty didn't pay for her family to come in. They drove, but they were there in Dallas to greet her. The current was there. The entire Golden Cyclones team was there, and thousands of people lined the streets for a parade. Next up, it was time to celebrate her in Beaumont. Again, thousands of people showed up to greet her and cheer her on and welcome her back as their favorite citizen. The principal of the Beaumont High School officially changed her transcript from withdrew February 14th to left school to be world's greatest athlete. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes, and this is key, with pre-measured ingredients so you could just cook eat and enjoy. HelloFresh does all the meal planning, the shopping, the prepping, and you can just focus on a healthier you and a happier family. What I really like about HelloFresh is they come with a six-step pictured recipe card that's delivered with all the ingredients in a special insulated box. I just take the box and I hand it to my son, my 14-year-old son. He can easily follow these instructions. The meals go together quickly and they are delicious. And importantly, you can get out of that recipe rut and start cooking outside of your comfort zone, or in my case, having my son cook outside of his comfort zone. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash HistoryChicks80. You're going to need to spell it out. It's History, the word, Chicks, the word, 80, the number. And then enter promo code HistoryChicks80. That's HelloFresh.com slash HistoryChicks80. And enter promo code HistoryChicks80 to start getting HelloFresh delivered to your house, too. Glory is one thing, and it's great. And it's fine. She was the Associated Press Best Woman Athlete in the World for 1932. But what was Babe going to do for an income? And I have always wondered about that with every Olympics, especially the more esoteric sports. You know, you've trained your whole life to get a gold medal in, say, badminton. (laughs) And then what? Endorsement deals, if you don't want to compete in the Olympics again, which is technically an amateur competition, 
I think the rules are a little bent now, but they weren't then. And Babe wanted to keep her options open to compete, uh, especially in golf. There were only a couple of competitions you could enter if you were a pro. So she negotiated a $300 a month salary as a typist with the good old employer's casualty company to play amateur basketball again. But some cross connections or nefariousness or just a misreading of the rule book occurred and a car dealer used her picture in a Dodge ad. Um, She was seen driving a Dodge throughout town and who's to say if she was compensated for that ad or not. Babe herself said her photo was used without her permission, but the Amateur Athletic Union ruled her ineligible to compete as an amateur because of it. There is a runner named Jim Thorpe that was stripped of his Olympic medals because he had once played a baseball game for $2. It's cruel. Mm-hmm. It was sort of dirty pool. There was a real grudge lingering against women athletes, I think, and Babe in particular. Maybe the media attention was seen as unseemly by the Olympic Committee. Um, maybe her manners were seen as crude or that she was making a circus out of their event. But nevertheless, she was cut out of amateur basketball. Yeah, and she didn't actually handle it so well because in the press, she said the 350-page Amateur Athletic Association rulebook was a, quote, terrifying business. I'm afraid I could never memorize all those rules. I'd rather try to smash another world record. Not only is she kicked out of amateur sports of many kinds... The reporter that she had beaten in both golf and foot race started to unleash his venom upon her, saying things like, and I'm not kidding, nobody knew whether to invite Babe into the men's locker room for a bath and a drink or whether to say, well, goodbye, kid. See you later. He called her a girl boy child. He... Uh, said things like she chose to compete against women in athletic contests because she would not or could not compete with women at their own best game, man-snatching. And for some reason, the thing that seemed to sting her the most was when he called her a muscle mall. I would think all those other things would be just as bad as that, but okay. He even went so far is to write a fictional story based on his vision of Babe and cast her as a character named Honey Hadwell, who was a bitter athlete in a boy's body with an ugly face. I mean, it was horrible. And it was in no less than Vanity Fair. So was that necessary? Absolutely not. Sometimes I think, and he did many years later, realize, but sometimes I think people don't realize there are real people on the ends of their venom. No, that's true on the internet. And it was certainly true back then. And they don't know how infectious they can be because he started off and then there were other reporters that came on. One of them actually said he didn't know if women athletes should be called Miss, Mrs., Mr., or it. Uh, You know, I'm kind of speechless about it. Yep. I have to tell you, they still do it to Serena Williams. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. she's one of the greatest athletes that's ever lived. So it's faded, perhaps a little, but it is still lurking for some reason. Um, so uh, Babe, unfortunately, was an early recipient of such vitriol from the press. Back on the upswing a little, the car dealer in question from her band felt bad about his part in all of this and organized some paid appearances for her at auto shows because that was his world. You know, he had contacts in the auto show world. And so Babe appeared and would do some trick shots and speak and sign autographs at, at auto shows. And she was a big draw and she was paid for that. 
And she also performed exhibition matches in boxing and bowling and billiards. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> but now things take a strange turn. <laughs> the agent that was booking her auto show gigs got her another gig headlining a vaudeville show in Chicago. Uh, what? She's like, I, what? You'll be great. Your name will sell tickets. And Babe's like, but what will I do exactly? Vaudeville? She was really concerned. <laughs> but she probably didn't need to be because her name was a draw. It did sell tickets. And her act, she sang. She sang fit as a fiddle and ready for love. She played the harmonica. She stripped down to her shorts and ran on a treadmill. With a timer to inspiring music. Quipping the whole time. The audience loved her. She filled those seats four or five times a day for a week, and she made 1500 bucks. But you know what? This is not me. What am I doing? She walked away from the sure money of this vaudeville theater. She felt like a clown, and she was a competitor. She said, I'm not a performer. She was a performer, uh -huh. but not in the limelight. So it was California and golf, she decided, that were going to be her future. And if she was careful, she reckoned she could live on that one vaudeville paycheck and learn how to really play golf. And then she was going to parlay that into something. She didn't know what, but she felt that spark, I think, during that fateful press golf competition. And she was going to follow up on it. Yeah. And she had been telling people since then, you know, when they asked what her next plan was, she said she was going to play golf, being stripped of amateur status, kind of put a kink in those plans. But at this point, she's going to go for it. She and her mother and Lily all moved out to California and she did what she's been doing since marbles. She threw herself into the sport. She approached a famous golf pro to the stars and he ended up being one of those people that she could charm. He loved her. He gave her a few pointers and offered to coach her. And she said, I can't pay for lessons. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give them to you for free. All righty then. <laughs> Free is a good price. That's a good price. She did have to pay for the buckets of balls, and they are recyclable, but she went through up to 15,000 balls a day. She hit. She, she was playing from dawn till dusk. She was playing until her hands were bleeding. That's how competitive she was and how much she really wanted to master the sport. And the coach said to her, babe, these skills take years to master. I don't got years, though, she said. She had the raw skill. She had the most natural swing I ever saw, said her coach. But golf is a finesse game. And the challenge of it just frustrated her and excited her, too. It wasn't like her to not be able to pick something up instantly. It was a novelty and it was very intriguing. And I'm glad she didn't give up. You know, sometimes if things come too hard, people who are used to things coming easy will let it go. It doesn't come naturally to me to persist <laughs> in learning things at all. I find it very difficult. Witness my own near-perfect zero record in sports. <laughs> this is a golf clap for you. <laughs> yes, a golf clap, but I'm pumped to Susan. Well, so circumstances crashed down on her again. California was so much more expensive than East Texas, and her budget didn't stretch to as long as she had wanted it to. She decided that it was time for her to go back to her $300 a month typist job. But on the way back to Dallas, she stopped in Beaumont and found her father extremely sick. He was in need of an expensive 
lung operation. She couldn't go back to work. She had to help get him back to health. Babe made a few calls and found a teaching hospital that would do the operation for free. I think that is very good. I think it's a shame that such measures need to be taken, just like the modern GoFundMe, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The employer's casualty company took her back at $300 a month like they continued to do throughout her career. Anytime that she was a little bit down and out or between things, they would always have something ready for her. She never forgot it. She said those people were wonderful. Whenever I needed it, there was always a place for me there. She was always very, very grateful for their assistance. And they didn't have to do that. Mm -mm. She took an offer that a promoter gave her. He had put together what was called a barnstorming basketball team, going from town to town, playing a local team in an exhibition match. The team was mostly men, but co-ed to some extent. And one carrot for Babe was that it was to be called Babe Diedrichson's All-Americans, even though Babe Diedrichson was the only All-American on staff. (laughs) She got $1,000 a month at a time when most working women worked for $12 a month and sent almost all of it home to her parents. And then came the season of novelty baseball. The (laughs) major leagues had her down to pitch some innings at spring training. She was not the greatest of pitchers at that level. It must be said. (laughs) But she knew how to work a crowd who liked her all the more. And then the most curious rabbit hole that either of us went down. (laughs) She joined a Jewish men's traveling baseball team named the House of David. This team's shtick was all the men had beards. They rode onto the field on donkeys. And of course, Babe fits right in there. How? (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, without a photo, we can't even. We're going to give you a link. They're really undescribable. Well, so Babe rides a donkey onto the field. Sometimes everybody rode donkeys the whole time. Um, They did a bunch of tricks. Like they would be able to bounce the baseball right on the bat for a long period of time and then hit a home run with one arm. And, you know, it was that kind of thing. The show was very entertaining for the audience, like the Harlem Globetrotters. Mm -hmm. You could take the kids, except... (laughs) One time Babe said something so off-color to a woman in the audience... And I was going to tell you what it was. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to cut it out and and put it after the music, maybe. And I think Susan knows what it is, but I tried to tell my dad on the phone just as a test and I could not. So we're putting it at the end. Okay, go ahead. So you could take the kids, but be ready for your earmuffs. Okay, so she was super tired of playing around. Uh, Riding on a donkey, really? Being a sideshow act, it must be said, Satchel Paige also got very tired of it. He was also involved with the House of David and was a sideshow act, and he went on to great things. So it was time to make a career in sports. As far as Babe was concerned, it looked like golf was going to have to be her future. And so at 23, Babe played in her very first golf tournament and qualified to compete. So she got a partner and got kicked out in the first round. But her style of golf was something completely new, and the press began to buzz in a positive way. This time, the wonder of track and field might just start taking names in golf. Babe practiced for months until her fingers bled, trying to get ready for the next competition. She was not going to have that poor result again. It was kind of embarrassing. Whatever. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. 
It was an experience, but she was not going to lose again. Now, unbeknownst to her, the officials at the next tournament were scrambling around trying every possible tactic to keep her out of the event. She was WT. She was not our kind dear. She was facing something she hadn't had to deal with yet, and that was class prejudice. One of the women that she would be competing against said, quote, we really don't need any truck driver's daughters in our tournament. Well, these were all the wives and daughters of really rich men. That's who played golf. Also, she was too brawny, they said. Too muscular. It was not fair. So how curious that we get that argument, that her body type, the way she was born naturally, was not fair for the other competitors and inappropriate in competition because there is uh, an Olympic athlete named Castor Semenya, a woman from South Africa who competes in track and field. And the Olympic governing body has just ruled, I'm kind of baffled by this, that her body naturally produces, quote, too much testosterone to allow her to compete in women's events. So the only way she is going to be allowed to compete is if she takes, I guess, estrogen to combat the testosterone level. And I think that's a step too far. That makes me frustrated because experts agree that's not the measure Mm -hmm. of a woman or a man. And Michael Phelps had a chemical imbalance that made him a super good swimmer. His body produces less lactic acid than the, quote, normal human body. So he didn't get fatigued as fast as his competitors. No one made him drag a weight behind him while he was swimming. How is this any different? I mean, I suppose I could make all the tall basketball players crouch to play me. <laughs> I just it seems like physical advantage is just how it is. That's thank the manufacturer, you know? No, I completely agree with you. I it baffles me as well. And, and it, what baffles me even more is that it's happening now in 2019. So I would like to give you both a link um at the end to the story of Castor Semenya so you can read for yourself. So anyway. Back to Babe and her adversaries, it pretty much didn't matter because I think we can all agree that this was not really about her muscles. It was a class situation. Of course, the truck driver comment got back to Babe. And in private, she was very upset by that comment. She hadn't ever faced that level of just dismissing like they hadn't even Mm -hmm. met her and they were already ready to just write her off but in public it was a red blanket to a bull you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. she took that and ran with it some of the quote ladies decided they weren't going to compete in the driving contest and so (laughs) oh dear babe pulled out all her vaudeville skills and played a very mincing delicate lady person during the opening minutes of this competition. Little old me, this club is so heavy. You know, I just can't swing. It was a whole act taking, as my husband would say, the piss out (laughs) of the naysayer, ladies. And the crowd, the audience, men, for the most part, was having a great time with the mockery. And then she just teed up and wham, 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 250 yards over and over and over. Take that, sissy lady buttercups. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Take that, sissy lady buttercups. (laughs) I just wanted to say it. It sounded so much fun. Because the universe loves comedy, guess who she was facing in the finals? It would be the woman 
who called her a truck driver's daughter. And guess who she beat in the finals? Well, revenge was babes. Yay, hooray. Except for truck driver lady and her compatriots responded by using their connections to get her banned from amateur golf. Now, this is a road she's been down before. We heard this story not that long ago. Again, like there's people that love her and people that don't. She had someone in her corner who was one of those society ladies. She was a member of the Texas Women's Golf Association. Her name was Bertha Bowen. And Bertha just wrapped Babe up and supported her. She hired a lawyer to try and get this overturned. And she just really gave Babe the emotional and financial support she needed at that particular time. It wasn't successful. The ruling held. And unlike the first time, Babe didn't mouth off to the press. She kind of just put her head down and accepted it because she realized that there was going to be an end to it at some point. And if she made a fuss about it, it was going to be even longer. Comedy story about that rich woman supporter. She paid for a major image change. She paid for a makeover. She spent 700 1930s dollars at Neiman Marcus for a (laughs) wardrobe for her, including a girdle, which Babe wore for one afternoon and then drove back to this lady's house squirming around like, get this sissy straight jacket off me. Can't get it off. And As far as Babe says in her autobiography, even though she quipped about girdles quite a lot, she never wore one again. So that was a waste of money. But I do (laughs) love the fact that that lady advised her to change her image a little to fit in so that the press would be on her side and help to overturn the ruling. So that was the strategy. In between, she did things like she played a golf game with Babe Ruth. It was Babe v. Babe who did not give her her nickname. You'll read that in a lot of sources if you do just close the book and move on. Her family had been calling her babe a long time. So she got some ad revenue from different places and also toured around with top male golf players doing golf exhibition matches. She had lots to do. She had people in her corner. Well, that's more than she had a little while ago. But at 27, we reach another major turning point. Babe decided to enter the Los Angeles Open golf match. Technically, this was not a co-ed event, or at least it never had been. No one had thought to write that rule down. (laughs) I'm imagining them flipping through the pages. Come on, it has to be in here somewhere. It has to be in here somewhere. Nope. But it was not. And in fact, they let her in, but she was the only woman in a male PGA event until Annika Sorenstam in 2003. Let that number settle down for a minute. So I'm sorry to say, it is my personal belief, that they let her in as sort of a publicity stunt and thought they were being cute. Pairing her up with the other novelty entrant, a pro wrestler named George Zaharias, who was known as the crying Greek from Cripple Creek because of his shtick. He was a crowd-pleasing performer, too, in his own sport. His name actually wasn't even George. He was born Theodore Vetoyanis. He was, a, like Babe, a first-generation American. His parents were immigrants from Greece, and he was raised outside of Pueblo, Colorado. His parents were ranch hands, so he was in charge of all the kids at home until about the age of 16 when he'd had enough. Well, just like Babe, he had to work to support his family, and he had dropped out of school and took up wrestling out of necessity. By now, when he met Babe, he was one of the top draws in the sport. You know how wrestlers, in addition to being athletes, I'll give you that, are also actors? What? Is that a big spoiler? Not at all. (laughs) George was the best, quote, bad guy 
around. That was his thing for the stage. Anyway, he had parlayed his success in the ring into a business. So he was now a promoter as well as a wrestler. And he was making like $100,000 a year in 1938. Mm -hmm. It's almost $2 million a year. So he was a man of means. Yeah. You know what? He said, day one, you're my kind of girl. Well, you're my kind of guy. So from that very first moment, the press had them pose for pictures. George put Babe in a wrestling lock and it was on. (laughs) I am reminded of the athlete and long duck dong in 16 Candles. (laughs) Headlock. I know. (laughs) It's my heart. Such an inappropriate movie, and I keep wanting to show my son, and then I watch it, and I think, oh, yeah, I'm not you sure. You know what else? This uh, ties into this one. Bad News Bears. I remembered it as a cute little movie, and I turned it on for my kids who were way too young for it, and it is full of cussing and adult themes. It was not good. <laughs> no, not so much. No. Well, they started dating. Their first foray was a steak dinner. With his brothers. So that's a little bit of pressure. But it really turned into a real relationship. He started calling her romance. And they had what I'd call an intermittent thing going because they weren't often in the same city. Long distance relationship. Because she had her career, he had his. And sometimes they met in the same place. They actually met and married in less than a year. I am a less than a year met and married myself. So... It happens. What about you? How long were you engaged? Uh, Our first date was in November. We got engaged in February and married the following November. See? (laughs) But I did. We did know each other before then. We worked together. Yeah. But it was also long distance. He was in Chicago. I was in Pittsburgh. My goodness. So they were married. And did you notice that the masculine comments seemed to peter out after this? Like almost now that she was married, she had cover Mm -hmm. or protection against that. Yeah. And she was also portraying herself. I mean, she knew what how to play the press. And she was portraying herself as this very loving, very feminine, traditionally feminine housewife, a woman who loved her husband more than she loved golf. Mm-hmm. And her husband loved golf more than he loved his wife, as far as I'm concerned, because he decided to become her manager. And he started when they were on their honeymoon by lining up exhibitions in Hawaii, Australia, and New Zealand. It was like a working honeymoon. He started promoting her career and managing her right from the get-go. I have to tell you, the Australian press called her a magnificent specimen of a woman. So I like them all better immediately. <laughs> So in public, Babe and George were so much in love and it was meant to be, etc. But in private, Babe was already dismayed by the way he drank, his frequent absences. It wasn't ideal. One giant benefit, of course, was his income. Just like all the country club ladies from before, guess what Babe had? A wealthy husband to subsidize her playing amateur golf. Although that's not how anybody would put it. She was on a level playing field with them, too. She didn't have to feel the pressure to go pro anymore. She could work on her game. She could make a name for herself in the amateur circuit. If only they would lift the ban. According to the authorities... She had to have five years of no professional money taken from sports. But since she'd already had two years under her belt, she had three more years. 
you could still compete in exhibitions and for charity, as long as the money went to charity, if you decline the purse and you win, that's fine. You can play and then you can go for broke. And so that's really what she did. I don't know if this worked in her favor or not, but it was during World War II. So she was able to do exhibitions to support the USO and played golf with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and Mickey Rooney, you know, the big USO names. She did what they wanted her to do. She didn't take the money. She just gave it away. Her favorite star that she ever played with was Bob Hope because he got her in a way that hardly anyone else did. And also they fed off each other like a good improv partner. It was like on like Donkey Kong. They were a mess. <laughs> they were a mess. Bob Hope would do things like um, tell the press, oh, this is a perfect matchup because she hits it like a man and I hit it like a girl. And then if he had a particularly bad shot, he would tell Babe to not look because he was embarrassed or whatever. It was just hilarious. I mean, everyone left there like their stomachs hurt from laughing. So it was really good. And in a really strange twist, at some point during this time, she became a youth recreation consultant. It was a volunteer gig, but she was a mentor for low-income youth, encouraging them to play sports. I kind of love that about her. She got a lot of praise for working without ceasing. And <laughs> had they only known, she's always like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> she decided to train relatively obsessively for tennis because that's her way. Since a lot of golf tournaments had been canceled because of the war, she trained with tennis up to the point where their association said she could never, not ever, compete at an amateur level in tennis because she had once taken cash for another sport. The end. There's no reprieve, no end. So she dropped tennis like a hot potato, even though she was super good at tennis. And then she took up bowling. I mean, she, <laughs> this is just like Babe from as a child. You know, she couldn't stop moving and she couldn't stop competing. So there's another sport. Put that on her resume. Well, luckily, all bowling was amateur. Yeah. And they hadn't got organized enough to have a pro team or whatever. And so she was allowed to play and she led her team to victory. I have n never seen such a versatile athlete. And I don't think the world had ever seen no. one either. <laughs> I asked my kids. I'm like, tell me a multi-sport athlete. And they, you know, they named uh, Bo Jackson and some people I didn't know. <laughs> Jackie Joyner-Kersey. Although oh, I guess yes, you consider the heptathlon as one sport, but it uses a lot of different skills. Mm -hmm. But none of them had the list that Babe did. Mm -mm. Not at all. I mean, at that level, I'm sure they dabbled at some point, but she did everything at a competitive level. So she hadn't been able to compete, but you know what? No one else had either. So she wasn't that far behind. But there is some bad news, followed by some good news. Her father did die from lung cancer. So it was towards the end of her five-year time. And she, even though she could have been looking forward to something wonderful, she was crushed with grief because her papa died. So the ban on her amateur golf status was lifted and Babe celebrated by laying waste to the whole circuit for a few years, 14 straight wins in assorted tournaments. Personally, though, she would say things. She'd show up to the tournament like, hey, y'all, Babe's here. What are you doing? Practicing to be second? <laughs> so who am I taking down today? Yeah. Looking around the locker room. You know what? She was back. Yeah. <laughs> Her brashness was back. Her golf was back. She um, competed as Mrs. Zaharias now, and she was trying to get people to call her Mildred, more a little brand realignment, but nothing doing. Babe was just too juicy of a name. Can you imagine the baseball crowd screaming, you know, go, George Herman Ruth? No, <laughs> he's the babe and she's the babe. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Mildred just doesn't do it. Further bad news, Babe had a series of miscarriages during the war years. You know, she tried to play it off like she didn't care, but she would have loved to have a child. And they tried to get adoption agencies to consider them, but really their household was not that stable. Everybody was always gone and who was going to be there and probably the working mom thing came into play in the 30s too. So they never did have any children. And then Babe's mother died. Babe got a call while she was playing a tournament in Indianapolis that her mother had had a heart attack and was in a hospital in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, we are still in the middle of the war and travel restrictions are all in place. She couldn't get quickly enough from Indianapolis to Los Angeles. So her mother, her sister, George, told her to finish out the tournament and then come. But unfortunately, even though she tried her hardest, it took her days to get back to Los Angeles. And unfortunately, she did not get there to say goodbye to her mother in time. So the person, the person who loved her unconditionally, no matter how obnoxious she was, is gone. I feel ya, babe. To make it even worse, Mama's funeral was held on babe's 34th birthday. Unhappy birthday. No kidding. So let's get back to golf. The British Open was held in Scotland, the birthplace of golf. And Babe was not going to enter. It was like, it's far. I've never been out of the country. And will you come with me? She said to George, who always said he'd come with her and then always decided he had a business thing somewhere else and never came. So he promised her he'd go to Scotland. So she booked the tickets and sure enough, he didn't go. So she was by herself. You got to do what you got to do. And her arrival in England was a little rough. There was no empty seats on the train from Southampton into London. So for the hour and a half train ride, she stood up with her bags. She's having to carry her own bags. All right, that's not so horrible. But people are telling her to wait in a queue. What's a queue? And then (laughs) the gates to the station closed because King George and Queen Elizabeth were going to their private train. So the whole station closed down. This baffled her. She couldn't even step on their red carpet without getting yelled at. She got on the train with a first class ticket. And again, there were no seats for her. So she stood. I question this. Maybe she leaned. Maybe she sat on the floor a little bit. It's a 10-hour train ride from London to Edinburgh. That's a long train ride, and she had no seat. So she was feeling a little anti, shall we say. Her arrival in Scotland, though, was hotly anticipated by the populace. But Babe had a chip on her shoulder now. (laughs) And so she showed up at the hotel where she was staying, and the waiter asked her what she would like to eat. And she said very tartly, well, what I'd really like is bacon and eggs. And I am sure you don't have anything like that around here because it was rationing, you see. And she knew it was rationing. But what she didn't know is everyone at the hotel had been so excited that she was coming that the chef had run down to an American Navy ship and done some kind of dirty black market deal (laughs) for supplies and had bacon and ham and eggs and all kinds of American delicacies, especially for her back in his pantry cave of wonders and they were so excited to bring that out for her and she began to thaw a little that was pretty great they also she was trying to practice and kind of on the low low looking around for somewhere to do it and the grass was so tall in the rough that you couldn't really like move off site everyone just practiced on the golf course and she just felt weird about that and that she didn't want everyone looking at her and so a farmer came along and roped off an area i just love this so much <laughs> and brought his sheep over 
<laughs> and told her, you just wait a couple hours. They'll have it down for you. And then sent someone to clean up the poo and escorted her to her new practice field. I love it. I love it. I love and it. They loved her. She hadn't brought warm enough clothes. And so the call went around and people mailed her things or brought her things or dropped them off. And she was just so overwhelmed by the kindness of it. She couldn't keep everything. And so she kept a couple things, in particular, one pair of corduroy trousers that the Scottish called her slocks, her slacks, I guess. And she wore those and sent everything else back with them. Thank you cards and everything. And People used to wave at her while she was practicing and invite her to tea when they saw her in their houses. It was a whole new world. Where are these people back on the train? Maybe she had to live through that to fully appreciate what they did for her in Scotland. She wasn't the first American woman to play in this tournament. That had happened 14 years before. But I think she was the most famous or the one that everyone just loved. So there's lots of warm, happy stories from Scotland. So while she was playing the tournament, she had to loosen up the crowd a little bit because in Scotland, everyone was very, very quiet. Just like you see golf tournaments now, where even the commentators like, and then, and now, it's the eighth hole, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, so bleh, irritating or whatever. Well, they were very polite that way in Scotland. And she's like, I need a little more pop, a little more jazz around here. I'm used to people laughing and clapping. And they're just like, I'm sorry, we we <laughs> cannot do that. And so until they stopped her, and they did stop her, she would do trick shots. She would hit the golf ball and light a match on fire. That is some skill. <laughs> She would basically set up obstacles for herself, make balls hop over things and under things and bounce it off her foot and think she probably learned at the House of David, frankly, (laughs) from the baseball guys. But um, so it was super good. They loved it. The officials are like, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to tell you to stop. But that's okay. She had succeeded in winning the hearts and minds. And so now instead of serious faces, she looked back and saw happy faces. And that's all she needs for her like juice, you know, for her energy. And she won the tournament. She's the first American woman to ever win that tournament. On her victory, she was celebrated. She wasn't looked at as someone from out of the country that won their their tournament. She was them. She was a golfer. This was the land of golf. And she was celebrated. She toured around the country for a while. And when she was returning to London, she had a private compartment on the train. She had a porter to take care of her bags. And, and she did the Highland jig wherever she went. They loved it. It was really good. Well, the Associated Press reporters back in the United States named her for the third year in a row, the Woman Athlete of the Year, something they had only done for her once before, right when she won all her gold medals in the Olympics. When she returned to the United States, it was Beyonce level welcome for her. (laughs) There was crowds, there was press, there was a 16 foot tall key to Denver, which is where the Zaharias's lived. But maybe the greatest thing that happened was that now girls from around the world saw her as an athlete they could be. Just a few years ago, they were being told by their parents, don't be an athlete like that. But now they're looking up to her and saying, that's an athlete that I can be. I can play at that level and be a girl. They're not mutually exclusive. There's a picture that I absolutely love in one of the books, and it is Babe standing there surrounded by little girls from about four to 14, and they're all just looking at her with such 
adoration with their little autograph books. Mm -hmm. And Babe was famous for standing there until the last little girl got her autograph signed. She would stay there and sign all those books and tell everyone they could be what they wanted to be. And it was great. And I love that picture so much. Mm -hmm. No, I know exactly the one that you're talking about. Yeah. So all those little girls and they're pretty little dresses too and white bobby socks and (laughs) patent leather shoes. Very cute. But yeah, all those girls are now, oh my gosh, I met Babe Zaharias. Although as great as that is, perhaps the personal biggest thing that happened when she got back is that she and George decided that it was time for her to turn pro, to become a professional golfer. They put her career into the hands of a promotional director for the Pro Golfers Association. He was also an agent to other athletes like Ted Williams and Stan Musial, which are baseball players, if you don't know. (laughs) So the endorsement and appearance offers were flooding in. Wilson Sporting Goods, manufacturers of golf clothes, watches, cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. A ghost-written book of golf advice. All kinds of projects were happening. And the director of the men's PGA decided it was time with this kind of power behind it, it was time for him to start an LPGA. As they said in the Drunk History episode about Babe Zaharias, <laughs> the L is for ladies. <laughs> there were 13 charter members and their first, very first game was in my hometown of Wichita, Kansas. How about that? But it has to be said, Babe was the tour. Even her competitors that had sour grapes, and I would too, because she was getting so much money and they were not, Mm -hmm. um, had to admit she was the bread and butter. But the problem is that she would never let anyone forget it. She actually called them all to a meeting where she explained, helpfully, that she was the star and they were the chorus girls. Okay, in her defense on this one, the women were being very loud about the pay difference. I don't blame them, but it's true. People came to see her. Their being there is great, but people were paying money for her. Well, uh. truth is a defense, but <laughs> she put lipstick on yeah. at the 17th hole every time she played. Like, oh, no, I'm getting ready for my press pictures later. You got to wait a minute. Come on now. One of the other competitors said, where I'm from in Texas, we call that kind of lady a piece of work. I think you wanted to say the B word. Yes, but they're too polite in Texas. (laughs) Another strike against Babe with these women was George. He was drinking a lot. And whenever he was drunk, he was belligerent and he was rude and he was drunk a lot. He would show up to LPGA meetings growling, women's golf belongs to me. That's a strike against Babe, if ever there were one. Yes, and another strike against George is I am sorry to report that he may have been abusing Babe all this time. Her colleagues reported suspicious bruises on Babe's arms and things. They were always fought a little, Babe and George, but it seemed like at this period it was kind of getting a little dark. Mm -hmm. So enter... Luckily, when she was 39, newcomer golfer Betty Dodd, also rough around the edges, like someone else we know, (laughs) but 20 years younger. She was also a musician. She played the guitar. She was a great golfer, funny, and who idolized her. And soon they became best friends. Uh, They even cut a record together. I... (laughs) 
That is the most random <laughs> babe on harmonica, Betty on guitar. They had so much fun together. They were having so much fun that Betty moved in to Babe and George's house in Tampa. History seems to think, and so do I. And do I. That they were soon much, much more than friends. So super awkward triad with George also in the house. But I think Betty and Babe together were a good combo. Mm-hmm. I together. do too. I do Although too. Babe in her autobiography simply euphemistically refers to her as, quote, a wonderful girl who stuck with me through the toughest going. Mm-hmm. My friend, she would refer to her, and totally normal for, you know, 1940. But later in life, Betty says in one interview that their relationship was romantic. They had such a great relationship. And this is somebody that Babe really needed in her life because George wasn't doing the job. Well, he'd been distant and troubled for years. Mm -hmm. So when Babe was 41, a movie came out called Pat and Mike, starring the incomparable Catherine Hepburn as an extremely thinly disguised Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias. (laughs) (laughs) And Spencer Tracy as a very thinly disguised and a lot thinner than the real George Zaharias. So with Ms. Hepburn and Ms. Zaharias in a room, you have two type A's that are not a good combo. Babe actually appeared in the movie. Ms. Hepburn thought that she was not being given the deference her stardom demanded. And Babe said of Ms. Hepburn, that lady is double parked with herself. (laughs) I think that's hilarious. But Here's who has the power, because in the script, Babe herself made a cameo as herself as the character's final competitor in the golf game that was the climax of the movie. And in the original script, Katherine Hepburn's character was supposed to win. And Babe put her foot down. I love this. She said, if this movie is going to imitate life, I always win. So I am going to win. And the script was changed Because Babe threatened to pull out of the whole thing if they didn't change it and have her character be the winner. Yes, who has the power? (laughs) Catherine Hepburn. That's right. I don't know too much about Catherine Hepburn's history, but I suspect that that's one of the few times that ever happened. I do too. Someone got the better of her in a situation like that. You know, my grandfather used to be the driver for the Hepburn family when she was a young girl. Okay, first a penny farthing, and now we have this connection. I just don't understand what is happening. Yeah, and he never had any nice things to say. But like Babe's father, uh, my grandfather told a lot of tall tales. So Mm. I do believe that he was the driver. Um, I don't believe all the stories he said about Miss Hepburn. (laughs) So I won't repeat them. Well, she had a lot in common with the ladies of the country club set back mm-hmm. on the golf course. She had this belief that people had their place and ought to stay in it kind of thing. Well, you she know. was raised that way. Yeah. yeah. And her family is very wealthy. So that same year, the year of the triumphant script change, Babe finally had to see a doctor for a pain she had had in her hip for well over four years. She had played through pain, of course, the whole time in Scotland. We didn't say this. She had played with the broken thumb. (laughs) And she actually said it improved her game because she didn't wallop it like she used to. She had to have it a little more finesse because it was hurting her thumb. So maybe that broken thumb was the universe saying, nope, you got to play a different game. But it turns out that she had what's called a strangulated femoral hernia. So it's very serious. Her leg was not receiving enough blood. It could have been disastrous. 
but she was having serious trouble recovering after that surgery. She was so tired. She couldn't even play well. She described her competition in the very first Babe Zaharias Open as, quote, crawling on hands and knees over broken glass. It was only sheer force of will that carried her through to victory. She had to win the first Babe Zaharias <laughs> Open, but she just barely made it. It, it was... Like I always say, it's like running through cold syrup. I've had days like that where you're just like, everything is just a slog. Mm -hmm. So something was very wrong. She went to the doctor and was diagnosed with rectal cancer. The diagnosis was bad enough, but the cure was going to be even worse. She would need surgery and the chances of her ending up with a colostomy bag were very, very good. And she thought she was done playing golf. Everyone thought she was done playing golf. The press was saying she was done playing golf. She tried to give away her golf clubs and then had second thoughts. Went to the hospital with her golf clubs so she could stare at them the whole time. I think it was actually Betty Dodd that put the golf clubs in her room. You know what? I think you're right because Betty um, also stayed in the room with her. Betty yeah. had been a nurse's aide in training when she was in high school. And so she set up a cot in Babe's room so that she could tend to her like a lady in waiting or a you know, a nurse's aide who loves the patient. Which or is nice. like a girlfriend, like a significant other. So everyone was very euphemistic about cancer about this time. The furthest anyone ever got to describing it was they said she was suffering from a malady of a malignant nature. But a lot of people kind of divined what was happening. She received tens of thousands of notes, just acres and acres, pastures full of flowers. And she begged to the press, hey, can you tell people to send money to the cancer fund and stop sending me flowers. Um, I love the notes. Please keep sending the notes. But I really would like to make a difference. And I think that would help a lot. Unlike the other babe, Babe Ruth, who was silent through his cancer up until he died, it was never known that he had cancer. Babe was using the word cancer. This is at a time that it was whispered, cancer. You know, mm -hmm. you just never said it. But Babe was saying it. She's like, I have cancer, cancer, you know, just trying to get the word being used out in the public. She also became an outspoken advocate for early detection. In interviews, she would say, do you have a mysterious pain? You go see your doctor right now. Don't be like me. I waited four years because I was afraid of what the doctor was going to say. And I waited too long. Don't let this be you. You get mm -hmm. in there. You talk to the guy. You get some stuff going early. Don't let what happened to me happen to you. She also went on the Ed Sullivan show to talk about cancer. She was not being shy. She was very serious about advocacy in a way that I haven't seen her be that serious about anything before. She was she took it very much to heart. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that came from. Maybe, you know, she'd seen her parents die. She knew that her, you know, she's facing her own mortality and that her body wasn't going to do everything that she wanted it to do. So she needed it was a stronger wake up call for her than some people. You know what I mean? Because I it was so far from what she'd done her entire life, being in control of that body. After her surgery, she did end up with a colostomy bag. And she was so very afraid. She was afraid of the unknown. She was afraid of being embarrassed. Basically, a colostomy bag performs the functions of your colon. So your poo goes in a bag. 
because it cannot go where it usually goes. And she was very afraid, but she was very determined to get back out there. And Betty was absolutely her rock. She was nursing her body. She was nursing her mind. Anytime she played in a golf tournament, which she did have to work up to, she was not back immediately. The organizers let her pair with Betty. The, who was a golfer, uh, you know, on that level. It's not like just random people off the street. But so Betty was there in case anything happened. She could just be right there yeah. to take care of anything. Even George. I must say, I don't have a lot good to say about George, but even George showed up for her and did things like hold a golf umbrella or when she was tired, he would hide her from the press so she could cry. Yeah. They were a great help to her. Bless both of them, but they both had a secret, something that she didn't know. After her surgery, the surgeon brought them in for a private meeting and said that they had found cancer in Babe's lymph nodes. And the three of them decided at that point, Babe was just coming out of anesthesia, that they were not going to tell her that she still had cancer in her body. So what a hard thing to decide. You know, are we going to tell her this or not? At the time, the wisdom was not to tell her. So they kept that secret from her. That is so unfair. It robs people of the ability to put their affairs in order. It robs people of almost like a different outlook. Mm -hmm. Especially for someone like Babe, who was so open and honest about what she was going through. So she's going to go on like she's cured. Mm -hmm. It was a hard decision, but I don't know that it was the right one. When she was 42, she was invited to the Eisenhower White House based on her advocacy for cancer research, early detection, just her openness to bring attention to the situation was very admirable. Also, Mr. Eisenhower was a big golfer. <laughs> you know what? He wasn't the biggest presidential golfer that we've ever had. That honor goes to Woodrow Wilson, who played 1,200 rounds of golf in his eight years to Eisenhower's 800 in the same number of years. And our current president is uh, at 186 in two and a half years. <laughs> there are people on the internet who track this thing. <laughs> I did not do the math. Here's a characteristic moment. Here is old school babe. So she meets the president, shakes his hand. There's a little golf thing. She meets the first lady and says, hey, Mrs. Eisenhower, I fixed up my bang so you won't be ashamed of me. <laughs> And Mrs. Eisenhower must have been taken aback, but just said, oh, now, yours are curling so nicely. I always find mine are too straight. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I feel this because I battle my bangs every day. <laughs> I feel you, babe. I feel you. So I thought that was very, very cute. Yes, well, very cute. So, so babe went on to win some major tournaments, including the U.S. Women's Open. She, by the end of her career, had been six times the Associated Press Women Athlete of the Year. She also won the 1953 Ben Hogan Comeback Player of the Year. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. But here's what she said. She said, we all won this. Me and Everyone out there whose good wishes and prayers helped me to win. I just want to say thank you. That is not classic, babe. There is a humility to that that we have not seen before. Yeah, she's definitely softened. You know, in addition to playing tournaments still, she's touring cancer wards and children's hospitals to tell these kids, you can fight this. The way that we always talk about cancer, you know, you can battle it, you need to fight it. That originated with her. She started all that after her first surgery. So she made her way through the cancer wards with 
fighting words and her harmonica. I hope that museum has that harmonica. That is like such a fundamental part of her personality. She told them tall tales. She was the hit. She was the hit of the Children's Award. She started a foundation for a cure for cancer. She gave so much money to the American Cancer Society and encouraged others to give, others in a position to give a lot more money than she. George and Babe built her dream house when she was 44. Literally, in Babe's case, she helped design it and she went out there in her cha-cha heels and helped nail it together, (laughs) which I think is so adorable. It was just a dream to have a house on a lake and it was just the perfect, everything was just the way that she wanted it Mm -hmm. at last. That same year, uh, 1955, she played and won by four strokes the Peach Blossom Tournament in South Carolina. Unfortunately, that would be her last golf tournament. I am very glad that she won her last golf tournament because Babe got weaker and weaker. And she stopped playing. She still had to achieve something that we all (laughs) have to just shake our heads about. She actually managed during this period of time to write or at least dictate her autobiography (laughs) to somebody. (laughs) Which I believe we should all consider a piece of (laughs) semi-fiction. But that's okay. It's a book. She's got it done. Um, Yeah. And it's in her voice. I mean, you can hear her voice when you read it. Mm Mm-hmm. But this is a little bit of a moment full of pathos for me. She had someone drive her out to a golf course. She's been too weak to play, even swing the clubs for a long time. She got out of the car and she sat down and she felt the grass. And she said, I just wanted to see a golf course one last time. So she knew. She knew that she was not ever going to come back from this one. And Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias died of complications of cancer on September 27th. 1956. She was only 45. President Eisenhower declared a national moment of silence. Golf tournaments all over the world did the same. She was cremated and her ashes were buried in Forest Lawn Cemetery across the street from the Beaumont, Texas Country Club. Her headstone reads, quote, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you played the game. Babe. False. We all know by now, don't we, that what she'd have to say about that sentiment. She actually said this. I don't see any point in playing in the game if you don't win. Do you? (laughs) Somehow that might not be as dignified on a headstone. I will say that the preacher who uh, performed the service at her funeral must have known her better than whoever cut her headstone because there was a quote from Corinthians from the Bible that is a lot more babe-like. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but that one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain it. That could have gone on her headstone. That is more babe than what was <laughs> on her headstone. <laughs> Just to keep those hits coming, the Texas Historical Society, years later, commissioned a placard for the area that got her birth date wrong and the origins of her name wrong. Now, in their defense, both of those things were her fault. She lied about her age to get to be a teenager in the Olympics. That was her. She had changed her birth date from the way, way back from 21 to 19. So they got her year wrong. And then the origin of her name was a story she had bandied about for years. True. 
And I think both of those things are in her autobiography. So I don't think they did it on purpose. No, no, no. And they did not have the internet so they could look at several sources. Right. (laughs) They just had Babe herself. Why would Babe lie about such a thing? So women in sports say that they owe a lot to Babe Zaharias. I mentioned Jackie Joyner-Kersey before, Olympic heptathlete. If you can imagine that, she gave Babe credit for inspiring her to be in sports at all. And I quote, Babe paved the way and inspired other young girls to compete in athletics. That's actually Jackie Joyner Kersey writing a note to herself as a nine-year-old. You know, this is the person you admired way back when you were nine. And so Jackie Joyner Kersey is considered the number one female athlete of the last century. And Babe Zaharias came in, I think, at number two. She was named the number one of the first half of the century. Clever way to split hairs, but yes. <laughs> but once you add in the last half. Yeah. <laughs> well, and certainly she inspired generations of golfers. Even in that picture we were referring to where all the little girls are staring at her with their autograph books, there is at least one and possibly two future female pro golfers in that photo. So Babe was a tough one, wasn't she? She was a tough, she was inspirational, except for from a distance, almost. (laughs) I I loved the multi-facets to her personality. I mean, she was just herself. Mm -hmm. And and then she was just herself. uh, With lipstick on. (laughs) With lipstick on, yes. I'm so glad we covered her. I hadn't known a lot about Babe Saharias. I mean, you know, I'm not much of a sportive, but um, there's so much that even the non-athletic can take from her. Just the persistence alone is very inspirational in my life. And I don't know if it was Babe coming back at me, but there were many times I was really tired doing the research for this or writing. I have to kind of work in my research now around some commitments that I didn't have before. And I found myself committed. Like, okay, babe would hate that I'm packing this away and going to bed. (laughs) I'm going to give it another hour because that's what babe would do, you know? And I didn't say that consciously or in fact out loud because that's crazy, but I did say (laughs) it in my head. So I think she's even, her influence has reached even here to 2019. Yep. My cousin Jim, who is one of the few family members that I have that listened to the show, had requested her years ago. I think he will be very happy that we covered her too. I'm glad we did. And I've learned a lot about golf. Did you ever play golf? No, I never played golf. I get a better score when I throw the ball, if that gives you any indication of how sucky my golf game is. I took it in college. My dad said it would be a good social sport for me to learn. Hmm. I was okay. I haven't played it since the 80s. Oh, unless there was like a windmill in a clown's mouth. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Miniature golf. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I actually live with the number one cheater in miniature golf in my house. (laughs) And that brings us to the end of our coverage of the life of Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias. And now it's time for media. As far as biographies go, I had two that I really liked. The first is what I'm calling the big one. It's Wonder Girl, The Magnificent Sporting Life of Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias by Don Van Netta Jr. I thought it was very good. It was very detailed. For those of you who like the uh, story arcs within the competitions, there's a lot of that in there. So I would recommend it for that. I do not recommend the audiobook, though. 
the narrator is really good when she's just reading, but when she puts on accents, it was really driving me crazy. <laughs> if you, you, we know what Babe Zaharias' voice sounds like. I will put it on the show notes. Yes, she had a little bit of a Texas accent, but it wasn't like you'd imagine, like super, super heavy. And it's done super, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Well, she had Get more Texas isms than a Texas accent. Like she'd say things like cockamamie. She said ain't. Just, you know, they're like vocabulary choices that she had or her delivery or her poor grammar sometimes. Right. But I don't think she had a syrupy drawl. No, not at all. So anyway, but I had to listen to it on audiobook because I had a lot of <laughs> not sitting and reading time. Uh, the second one is Babe Conquers the World, The Legendary Life of Babe Diedrichson Zaharias by Rich Wallace and Sandra Neal Wallace. There is a ton of pictures in here. It's more written more as a YA level biography. The facts are all there, but the pictures, there are so many pictures crammed into this book. I would get it just for that. And then I like how there's sidebars in that book that kind mm -hmm. of, hey, by the way, if you want to know about the first woman to get a gold medal in the Olympics, blah, 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 blah. And, and you know, hey, mm. would you like to know a little more about the Olympics in general? Or just, I don't, I don't know. I just like the way that the sidebars are yeah. giving you more information that isn't maybe directly related to the narrative. You'd be going through a chapter and there'd be a two-page spread of a sidebar about yeah. something. Yeah. I thought it was very well laid out. Okay. Well, those were my main books too. So moving on. What about The Life I've Led, my autobiography? Oh, okay. <laughs> I have it sitting here. <laughs> I do have it sitting here. And and if you read it, and I would read it maybe once you've read these others, one or the other, but there's a grain of salt that you have to hold in both hands sometimes when yes. um, when you read that book. I mean, I have it open and I was actually paging through trying to find things about Betty Dodd, figuring that's the book I'm going to find it in if I was going to find anything. And she doesn't get into the relationship in mm -hmm. that book. So I liked to hear from different perspectives. So yes, The Life I've Let, her dictated autobiography is <laughs> very good. I'm sorry I left that out. Yes. <laughs> it is online too. We'll link you up to it so you don't actually have to get a get the book. You can just scroll through it. I liked her autobiography because it's in her voice. You can just hear her saying this. It's like a lot of dictated autobiographies like this. They put on some pretentious voice. The person does and mm -hmm. Babe does not at all. <laughs> it's her, which was delightful. So unlike our last two episodes, hooray, there is an episode of Drunk History <laughs> for Babe <laughs> Zaharias. This one stars Emily Deschanel as Babe Zaharias, and I really love it. So we will provide you a link to watch that. Hooray. There is also an episode of The Simpsons where Marge Simpson goes in costume as Babe Zaharias. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. There's also Pat and Mike, the 1952 Catherine Hepburn Spencer Tracy movie, which is not on any streaming service, but I did pay to rent it from Amazon. And I made it all the way to like the three quarters of the way through Mark before I fell asleep. And so you didn't see Babe herself? Uh, no, I did. I did because oh. I went like I went back. You can she's actually in the beginning part too. There's she's there's a little pop of her. <laughs> but yeah, no, I went back and I mean, you got it for 48 hours, right? So no, I went, I went back to the parts I missed. <laughs> so I went to the land of Nod. There's a documentary called The Founders about the 13 original LPGA members in which they actually interview the four surviving of those 13 ladies. And several of them have things to say about Babe Zaharias. So 
<laughs> so that's good. There's also a movie from 1975 that has 1975 production values. Oh my goodness. It reminded me of a high school theater production. It reminded me of a soap opera. It was not good. I wouldn't even turn it on. I, I yeah, no. <laughs> No, no, just don't. I mean, don't. seriously, there are people that we cover that are just just ripe for a biographical picture. I mean, there's nothing you'd even have to doctor mm -mm. or do, and there's nobody. So maybe getting these stories out there in the public face, some skilled filmmaker will take us up on the challenge. Yeah. I would spend my YouTube viewing time watching uh, videos of Babe, you know, doing her doing sports. And there's a hilarious one of George mowing the lawn while Babe sits on a chair and he's got a shirt and a tie on and he wipes his brow. It's so staged. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. On the podcast, This American Life, they did a whole show on testosterone. So that goes along with the controversy over the track and field star Carter Semenya. So I'll provide you a link to the ruling and the background on Caster Semenya's case, and then a link to the American Life episode on testosterone. And what I wanted to link you up on that this American Life episode, there is a chapter, they have like five chapters in a show, there is a chapter in which all of the staff members of This American Life take a testosterone test to see who has the highest. And the highest level in the women was a woman who was very, very pregnant at the time. Oh. So using testosterone as a marker might not be the way to go. Well, she was growing a child in her abdomen. <laughs> that does take a lot of uh, physical effort. So anyway, I just wanted to say that maybe the hormone is not what you need to measure. So anyway, also an article referencing the LPGA history and formation of same, the Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias Museum in Beaumont, if you're around, is perhaps not the most well-known of museums. Maybe, you know what? That's what we should do. Let's make a pledge this summer to go to some obscure museums in our town. Oh. Whatever town we're in. Oh, my goodness. In my town, there's the American Angus Hall of Fame. <laughs> I have the Hair Museum. <laughs> oh, I love that. The Hair Art Museum. So, yes, okay, there's a challenge. I like that challenge. Um, and whoever lives in Beaumont, Texas, can cover the babe. Zaharias Museum for us. It and, won't take you long. It's a very small building. <laughs> and tell me if they have the harmonica. I'm very interested to know. Oh, yeah. Yes, I would like to know that too. There's no online tour of it, so we have to rely on reports. Uh, I am also going to link you to an article in On the Issues magazine. It talks about closeted lesbian athletes using Babe as it, the example. The writer obviously takes a yes, she was stance. But what I liked about it is there were several points that the writer made that made me say, oh, I never thought about it that way. So that's why I'm going to link you to it. And that will do it for our coverage of Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias. And in closing, let us leave you with a quote from the New York Times. This greatest woman athlete of our time has left us a rich heritage. It isn't just in the record books. It's in the inspiring story of a warm human being who had to do it the hard way and who did it magnificently. Not only the annals of sport that her life has enriched, it's the whole story of human beings who somehow have to keep on trying. Thanks for listening. Bye.
If you learned anything from the show, please tell a few friends about us or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You still have an opportunity to come see us at PodX, the podcast convention in Nashville for listeners and creators of shows. We are doing a live show on May 31st. The convention goes till June 2nd, and we will be there all weekend. Come join us. You can receive 10% off your pass with the code CHICKS at podx.com. Show us your local museums. We'll gather them up all through the summer in a post in the lounge. What's the lounge, you say? Well, that's like our clubhouse online. Everyone can participate. You just go to our Facebook page, and there's a button at the top that says Join Group. Answer the questions to prove you're not a robot, and you are in. The harmonica song in the middle is Only the Missile by Robin Gray, and the end song is Play the Game by Lily Wolf. Both are used by special license from iLicense. said a lady from the audience. I'm sitting on him, sister. Same as you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what? That's hilarious.